This episode of Motley Fool Answers is supported by Wonder Capital. That's Wonder with a U. It's an investing service that allows individuals to invest in solar projects across the U.S. Earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, future doctor, and uh, previous professor, a teacher. Teacher. Yes, it's true. (laughs) So, summer is over, and today we're taking you back to school. Professors Bro and Allison will deliver bite-sized money lessons in math, economics, English, and history. Sure, sounds good to me. We'll also answer your question about how to consider your real estate investments in your portfolio. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Fool Answers. Time for Answers Answers! All right. This one comes from Bruce. He writes, Now, you told me to edit this down, and you left out some of the praise that Bruce had for you, but I stuck it back in. Okay. Bruce says, Love the show. I listen every week, and I also have read every word that Bro has written for Rule Your Retirement. That is more than 12 years worth of issues, so good for you, Bruce. God bless you, Bruce. (laughs) All right. His question is, I have a substantial amount of investable assets in income-producing real estate, rental real estate, close to half as I started investing in real estate at a very young age. I have been ignoring this in my allocations, but after thinking about it for a while, realized that is pretty dumb. What is your recommendation for considering these properties in my investment allocation and in creating a model portfolio? Well, Bruce, uh, the question that you would ask with any not non-portfolio asset, and including your human capital, which is your ability to earn a paycheck, and the question is, how does it affect the risk profile of my overall household finances? So, if you have rental properties and they're cash flow positive, what that's doing is it's adding diversification to your overall household portfolio, because you've got an asset that can increase in value and it's producing income. Because it is adding this diversification, it lowers your overall risk profile, which means you can take more risk in your investment portfolio. You might have more stocks than you otherwise would have. Um, You do have to look at the properties themselves. So, for example, um, just like stocks, you want to make sure you are diversified. So, if all your properties are in the same area, serving the same sort of people, they're not quite as diversified as if you had properties in other locations. Um, you know, maybe rental properties that are on the beach, rental property on a lake, something like that. Um, the location of the properties and is that location economically diversified? So, is it in a place like Detroit that was very reliant on the auto industry, or is it in a place like Washington D.C. area, which has sort of a very diversified economy? And then the other question people will often bring up when it comes to real estate and their portfolio, they'll say, "Well, I have a house, I have rental properties." Maybe I don't need to invest in things like real estate investment trusts, which is a good type of stock to have in a, in a diversified portfolio. But the truth is, REITs are very different than rental properties and your house because REITs invest in companies like hospitals, like storage facilities, like office um, facility, office buildings. So they they perform very differently than rental real estate or your own house. So just because you have rental property doesn't necessarily mean you should not have REITs. But overall, I think having the real estate is a great idea and allows you to take more risk in your portfolio. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so, 
Settle down, class. Take your seats. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Summer's over. School is in session. And so today we are taking you back to school. Get on the bus. We have four classes today. We were going to include a, re- a recess, but then we just couldn't come up with a good recess. So yeah. whatever. We're so just, go out and play at some point in the middle of this yeah, podcast. Yeah, just pause it and go go play tag with some strangers or something. <laughs> Bro, you used to be a teacher. <laughs> yes, I used to be a teacher. You used to be a teacher. Tell me about right. that. Well, so <laughs> I actually was pre-med in college and had plans to go to med school, but I wanted to do some sort of volunteer work before I went to med school. So I joined something called the Teacher Service Corps for the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. to teach in an inner city school in Washington. It ended up being in Georgetown, which if you know the area, that's not very, it's not really very <laughs> inner city. Um, but I taught for five years. I taught sixth and seventh grade literature and religion, a little bit of science, a little bit of computers here and there. Um, and in the process of that, I got a master's in education, too, along the way. Yeah, I feel like you were born to be a teacher. Oh, well, I, You're so good? good at it. Oh, yeah, that's you're what good I, at it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, we're actually going to split up the classes today. We are. So that means I'm going to be teaching a couple, which I don't know. I think you'll do a fantastic job. I don't know about this. We, we know that my history of accuracy is in question. <laughs> first class, first period, is English. And that's me. I'm Yay. your teacher. All right. I'm so, seated. I'm listening. You're I got my pen and ready. All right. So today for English class, we're actually going to do etymology and we're going to look at the origins of the word portfolio. Really? Okay. Okay. Go right ahead. All right. So portfolio, of course, in finance means your collection of invest- investments and financial assets. It comes from, probably not surprisingly, the idea of the suitcase the portfolio suitcase. It comes from Italian as early as 1722 from the word portafolio. <laughs> really? Porta meaning to carry and folio from the Latin meaning sheet or leaf. So literally, it's a, a, a way to carry your sheets and pieces of paper. <laughs> gotcha. Now, it wasn't until the 1930s that the word portfolio started meaning the scope of responsibilities for a job, such as if you were in government office, you would say, well, it's not part of your portfolio. It's not part of your job. It wasn't until the 30s that people actually started using portfolio to mean a collection of securities. But it still wasn't widely used, nor was the theory behind portfolio like it is today. Oh, that's interesting. All right, well, just wait for it because it's going to get more interesting. It's getting even better. All right. So, back then, and we're talking like in the 30s, when people created a portfolio, it was based on finding a good stock and buying it at the best price, which isn't, I mean, that's not bad in theory. But the problem was that this was in the 1930s and all of the information about a stock was based on gossip, whispers, hearsay, and a very slow ticker tape machine. And so, according to Investopedia at the time, investing was perceived largely as a form of gambling for people too wealthy or too haughty to show their faces at the track. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a cute quote. Uh, Way to be cute, Investopedia. So, the term really took off in finance due to a 25-year-old grad student, maybe you've heard of him, Harry Markowitz. Yes! I got an email from him once, but keep going. You did? He's a Nobel Prize winner. I know. Oh my gosh. I wrote wrote an article about it when he turned 80, and I sent it to him, and he sent me an email back. It was kind of cool. Aww! So you're probably going to know a lot about what I'm going to talk about from this point on. But basically, Markowitz is dubbed the father of the modern portfolio theory, also known as MPT. Uh, And even though he didn't have a background in finance, he was fascinated by the economics of uncertainty, which, I mean, it's basically 
the stock market, right? right? <laughs> when we're talking about the economics of, unthir- of uncertainty. So, he thought it was cuckoo how nobody was worried about risk when it came to building a portfolio. Uh, and even in the 50s, which is when he wrote his um, doctoral thesis, Portfolio Selection, people really only cared about buying a smattering of stocks that they thought were bargains. So, he thought that what you should do, instead of just buying a bunch of random stocks, bonds, etc., that you think are a great pi- price, you should try to reduce your you reduce your risk while seeing the same returns, and you do that by deliberately offsetting high risk return things like stocks with low risk, low return investment like bonds. Basically, diversification. Right. And now the words <laughs> diversified portfolio pretty much go hand in hand. Right. It's it's kind of crazy because it's almost a given nowadays. But back then, it was it was this new concept, and he won a Nobel Prize for coming up with the idea of diversification. Yeah. So he also proposed that once you knew your risk tolerance, you could just plug the right investments in. So I don't know if you knew this, but his paper, again, called Portfolio Selection, didn't blow people out of the water immediately, mostly because four out of the 14 pages were were text. Only four. The other 10 were graphs and numerical doodles. Which sounds whimsical, but it probably wasn't. It was probably a lot of like sweeping equations and stuff that, anyway. But the way they described it on Vestipedia, I thought that was adorable. Eventually, though, his dissertation took off. Since we all know the word portfolio today, uh, and the term also skyrocketed in the late '50s and '60s. So if you look it up on Google, you know you can look up trends for for in literature and everything. And right after, like early late '50s, early '60s, the term for portfolio just skyrockets. So huh. there you go, from suitcase for carrying your papers in Italy, the portfolio. <laughs> that doesn't sound like Italian at all. The portfolio. Whatever. Sure, that sounds great. That sounds awesome. To the modern portfolio theory or MPT. That's really interesting. Thanks. <laughs> Sad idea, teacher. You did a great job. Great. Now it's your turn. I'm going to give you a good a good score on rate my professor, or rate my teacher, which would have horrified me, by the way, if such a thing existed when I was a teacher. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Well. What if, bro? You could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time. That would be great. All right. Well, introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals, such as you, to invest in solar energy projects across the U.S. So, here's how it works. Wonder's platform allows you to earn up to 11% annually while diversifying your portfolio, curbing pollution, and combating global climate change. Your investments in Wonder's fully managed solar investment funds goes directly to helping U.S. small and medium-sized businesses install solar panels. As those businesses repay their loans to Wonder, you receive monthly payments directly deposited into your bank account. Individuals who've previously invested with Wonder Capital have supported the installation of long-term financing for high-end storage facility in Florida, a government office building in Minnesota, and many other projects across the country. Best of all, are you ready for the best of all? I'm ready. Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. So, you can create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash fool. And again, that's Wonder, W-U-N-D-E-R. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Next class, math. Math. Well, class, we're going to talk about three important financial ratios. One you've probably already heard of, and that is the P.E. ratio. We all talk about it. You've probably heard of it. It's the most common way to measure a stock or the overall stock market. But I thought it'd be good to explain to make sure everyone understands how it's calculated. So, you first have to calculate a stock's earnings per share. Wait, teacher, teacher, teacher. teacher yes, 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 yes. Uh, Wait, what do I use? What? Why do people use a P/E ratio again? 
It is a measure of the stock markets or an individual stock's value. Value, not its value. price, right. not its stock price. Nothing right. It's that. basically it's it is how much you are paying for a dollar of a company's earnings. Okay. So to do it, you first have to take the company's earnings, which is its profits, divide it by the number of shares outstanding, and you get the earnings per share. Most PE ratios look at the earnings per share for a company over the previous 12 months, mm-hmm. and that gets divided into the market price. So let's say you have a stock that has an earnings per share of $2. Mm-hmm. It's trading for $20 per share. 20 divided by 2, you have a PE of 10. Okay. If that same stock were trading for 40, you then would divide 40 by 2 or 40 by 2. Yes, yeah, so that's how it goes. You get the PE of 20. So that is basically a measure of whether how much you're paying for a dollar of earnings. Now there are different PE ratios that people talk about. So that's the trailing PE. Some people look at the forward PE and that is the projection of a company's EPS earnings per share. Nowadays, you hear the cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, or called the CAPE, or the Schiller PE, because Robert Schiller, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, popularized it. It basically averages out the previous decades of earnings, adjusts for them for inflation. But if you look at history, it's actually a decent indicator of what returns will be over the next 10 years. The CAPE, as it's known, is pretty high these days. So it indicates that future returns will be low. But that's the value. That's why people use the PE ratio. They want to get an idea of, am I getting a good value for this stock? Every time we talk about PE ratio, I end up asking you a question like, what's a good PE ratio? Well, the histi- and I, then I always forget what your answer is. Well, but you're do- a really good teacher. <laughs> Thank you very much. You know that you're doing great. Thanks. So historically, the PE of the overall stock market is around 16 to 17 okay. or so, right? Um, so there you go. That's the first one. Our second one is the 12 times salary retirement savings ratio. And that's kind of a name I came up with in an article I wrote for early retirement. I looked at all kinds of studies that looked at how much someone should have saved before they retire. And they were expressed as a multiple of your annual salary. At the time of retirement? Right before. Okay. Basically, it's an indication of when you can retire. And the consensus of the studies was that you should be shooting to have between 10 and 12, and 12 is better, 12 times your annual salary before you retire. Hmm. This assumes that you're going to be retiring around in your 60s and that you're going to have about a 30, 25 to 30 year retirement. So. If your household income is $100,000, you should have about $1.2 million saved before you retire. And it's just a good benchmark for because people are always curious about, well, when can I retire? And it's a good thing to shoot for. Now, of course, it's a rule of thumb, and it depends on your other assets. If you have a pension, for example, if you have rental real estate, for example, it also depends on your income. It turns out if, you're a, if you have lower income, like $75,000 per year, you may need only 10. If you are in higher income, like $200,000 a year, you probably need something closer to 14 to replace your income. And that's because Social Security, the way it is designed, is it replaces more income for lower, a greater percentage of income for lower income people. Higher income folks, Social Security is going to replace less of your income. So if more money you've earned over your lifetime, the more you have to have saved, you want to replace your income before you retire. That's number two. And number three, the housing cost ratio. And it's basically, it starts really with what lenders 
how much they will lend you. And they're going to look at your before-tax income and determine, and they're going to say, we only want your housing expenses to be, when the expenses means mortgage, insurance, property taxes, to be 28% of your before-tax income. So you've got to shoot for that to get a loan. Now, if, if the mortgage is going to take up more of your income than 28%, there are programs available to help you. But I think it's a good guideline regardless of whether or not you need to take out a mortgage. Uh, and it's also a good guideline if you're going to determine what rent you can afford to. Because when you look at your budget, your housing costs, whether it's a mortgage or rent, is going to be the biggest line item. And therefore, it's going to determine how much you have left over to save. So I think it's a good idea to shoot for keeping all of that to 28 to 30% of your expenses. It does depend on your circumstances. So I had a conversation just today with a colleague of ours who's thinking of buying a home. This person is married, but they don't have kids. And that figures into it, right? If you're not going to have kids, you're going to have a lot more money left you can over. You have all the house. You can have you get five any houses. house you want. <laughs> you can each have a house exactly. everywhere. But, and they're not sure, but they're thinking of it. So you have to factor that into the situation because once you have kids, I mean, I don't know what the current you can't num- have nice things. You can't have. I don't know what the current number is, but the Department of Agriculture, yes, agriculture estimates how much it costs to raise a kid to about age seventeen, Mm-mm. and it's something like three hundred thousand dollars, yeah. and that's not including college. So that would factor into this. But I still think trying to keep your housing expenses to thirty percent less of your budget. It's a pretty good idea. All right, so there you go. Three ratios to know. The P-E ratio, the 12 times your salary ratio, is that what we're calling it? Sure, it sounds good to me. And the housing cost ratio, less than 20... 28% 28. of what lenders will use, but just as a guideline, 28 to 30% is good. All right. Class dismissed. Which class are we in now, teacher? It's time for history class. Yay, my favorite subject. Oh, I stole your favorite subject because I called dibs on which subjects we got no, to do. No, it's not. I'm I'm going to learn something. That's even better. Maybe I know. Like I couldn't teach you anything since you're best friends with Harry Markowitz, but <laughs> whatever. All right, I think I am going to teach you something about the tulip mania. Supposedly, the very first speculative bubble. Okay, I so think, I think most people have heard of it, but I'll just to recap. The tulip mania of the 17th century. If I had a big whiteboard or chalkboard, this is what I would be writing down. The tulip, Robert, was like any other flower that came before. They were bright and vibrant, and they survived well in the low country. Why are you laughing at me? I love your, you're doing a great job of teaching this with your demonstrative things that no one else can see unless they're watching the video. During the Dutch Golden Age, as Holland grew into a world power, the tulip also grew in popularity. Tulips eventually became the fourth most popular export after gin, herring, and cheese. Which (laughs) sounds like a party! (laughs) They make good cheese in Holland, I'll give them that. I don't know about the gin and the herring, but whatever. So, things got interesting around 1634, when the demand grew for bulbs. Uh, So much so in other countries like France, that speculators were kind of brought into the market. And I actually don't have a good tight definition for a speculator. How would you define a speculator? Well, I would say it was someone who's buying something only to as an investment and is looking generally as a short-term type of investment. Just turn it around. And, right. Yeah. Okay. So, eventually the Dutch created a futures market and bulbs stopped changing hands altogether, but the contracts for the tulips kept moving around. They called it 
Windhandel, which literally meant a wind trade, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, some <laughs> futures contracts were being traded like 10 times a day. And then the bubonic plague happened. Oops. Womp womp. <laughs> and the market collapsed. Which is not surprising. It's hard to diversify against plague it risk. It is very hard, <laughs> as we have learned. So, fast forward 200 years, and the tulip mania was largely forgotten until a book was written by Charles Mackey. It was called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. It sounds like a pretty good book. It's a good book. Have you read it? I, I have read excerpts of it, and it's, it's generally considered one of the great books about risk management and the history of risk. Okay. Uh, well, I've got some bad news for you. So, Uh-oh. it took a closer look at tulip mania and other bubbles. And according to Mackey, uh, in the book, he talks about the tulip mania this way, this way. The population, even to its lowest dregs, embarked in the tulip trade. By 1635, a sale of 40 bulbs for 100,000 florins, also known as Dutch guilders, by the way, was recorded. And by way of comparison, a ton of butter cost about 100 florins. A ton of butter? That's what he wrote. A skilled laborer <laughs> might earn 150 florins a year, and eight fat swine cost 240 florins. So, everyone believed him. Until the 1980s, uh, when people began to doubt that it really was all that big of a deal. Interesting. Yes. In 2007, Ann Goldar wrote Tulip Mania and concluded that many of the stories around tulip mania, including what Charles Mackey wrote, probably weren't even true. So, for example, one story was how a sailor accidentally ate a tulip bulb that was worth more than what it would have cost to feed the whole crew for a month. Probably not true. (laughs) <laughs> and she also found out that there weren't really that many people involved in the speculative market of tulips. And while, yes, the price of tulips did rise and fall significantly, maybe like six people, she said, took a serious financial hit when the bottom fell out. Really? Yeah. So, when it comes to bubble, what's generally regarded as the godfather of them all, tulip mania, was actually more on par with Beanie Babies <laughs> than, say, like the housing bubble. But, thanks to the media and the book that Charles Mackey wrote, we all know about it and we all thought it was a big deal. So, nothing changes. So, there was a bubble in the story of this bubble and eventually it was popped. Yeah, but it's like a different kind of bubble, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, your bubble was popped. My bubble's been popped. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, that's your history lesson for today. That tulip mania of the 17th century, and it still held up as like the classic story of, of... you know, mania. And in, your, in your research, did you find out any? So oh, now, now I don't go. know if like it even mattered or not. But so when you mentioned the top exports, right, the the herring, herring and all that, cheese. like that's stuff that you can eat and consume. And I always wonder, like, what was the big deal about tulips? I mean, there are plenty of beautiful flowers in the world. Why did the mania spread? But then you can't I can, eat beanie babies either. Yeah, that's it's true. But like, why wasn't there a rose? A rose bubble, or like what? What about the tulip caught everyone's imagination? Oh, I told you! Didn't you hear my sweeping? But I know ode I mean, I, to the. It is vibrant and bright, and it survived well. And apparently, tulips um, has such a beautiful and high saturation of color that was unlike anything other people had seen. And there's also like this virus that came in and made tulips a little bit more wacky and weird, and that was really prized as well. Interesting. I don't know why does anyone like anything. I, that's a great. <laughs> Good. That's a good question. I wonder how I ever got dates in high school. Oh, <laughs> you are a tulip kids. among men. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. It is time for econ class. Hi, Dr. Bro. Hi, everybody. Professor Bro. I should say you're not a doctor yet. I realize it's after lunch and everyone's tired, but try to pay attention. 
Anyways, here we go. So in economics class today, kids, we're going to discuss a couple of possible answers to the question of why don't Americans save a lot. Um, as, a, as a nation, we actually have a pretty low savings rate. And if you look at some things like retirement rate readiness indexes, we're way behind many developed countries. So why is that? Well, there's one research paper that tried to address this last summer and is entitled The Role of Time Preferences and Exponential Growth Bias in Retirement Savings. Of course. So let's break that down. Did, was this homework? Was I supposed to read this before <laughs> class? Because I did not. So, as you could guess by that spine tingling title, <laughs> there are two proposed explanations for the low savings rate. One is the present bias, and, and that is the tendency in evaluating a trade off between two future options. So, basically, the people who are not saving just are not thinking further enough down the road. The bird in the hand is worth two in the exactly. bush. Exactly. And in fact, they, they did tests on this, of, uh, they surveyed over 2,000 people and they asked them questions like, What would you rather have, $100 now? Or $120 uh, 12 months from now? Or would you rather have $120 a year from now? Or $140 two years from now? So the people who expressed more of an interest in getting the money now are the people who have the present bias. They really want the money now. And also talked, talked a little bit too on procrastination. So where they would talk, ask people questions like, I guess, like, you're going to get a tax refund in six months. Do you plan to invest it or not? Um, and the people who scored highest in having this present bias, of those who said, yeah, I'm going to do it, they were least likely to actually do it, probably. Um, it was actually interesting that the paper actually talked a little bit about procrastination in the role in all this, and cited a study that found that the people who sign up like on the last day possible for their health care plan during <laughs> open enrollment, mm -hmm. they save less for retirement, and they stick with the default option. So there's a, there's a certain element of procrastination about all this. And then the other factor that they looked at was the exponential growth bias. And basically, it is that people don't appreciate the benefit of compound growth. So they underestimate how much saving and investing will pay off. So when you think of like simple interest, and they did this, by the way, by asking people math questions about compound growth, but people were incentivized to get the answer right. They would get money if they got the answer right. And they were told they could use any means possible, so they could use a calculator if they wanted to. The people who tended to um, not get it not get it correct it was I think it was along the lines of seventy percent of the people didn't get it correct. Those people also tended to have less money in retirement savings because they underestimate how much it'll pay off in the future. Um, and they also the flip side of that too is that they underappreciate how much debt can snowball. Because compounding, when it comes to like a credit card bill, also, it's the same thing, except it's going right. the other direction for right. you. Um, so when you put these two together, the researchers found that there is definitely a correlation between people who have a present bias and people who underappreciate compound growth and retirement savings. And they figured that if you could eliminate those two biases or these two problems, um, the nation's retirement savings would probably be about 12% higher. So it's not huge, but it is one, one or two possible explanations for why we don't save enough. Uh, oh, Mr. Rowe, Mr. Rowe, Mr. Rowe, uh, Mr. Rowe, Mr. Rowe. Allison. Mr. Rowe. 
so you said that compared to other developed nations, we don't save as much. But I can't imagine that people in other nations have any less of these behavioral biases than we do. Would you perhaps think that because other countries have larger safety nets and retirement plans and pension plans, that that's that they are basically overcoming? their population's bias by instituting these programs? Uh, that is an interesting question um, because thank you. it's not only uh, a situation that we're behind developed countries now, but Americans today save much less than Americans of 30, 40 years ago. So the savings rate, I was reading an article um, by Derek Thompson of The Atlantic, and I'm, I think I'm remembering this correctly, they said basically the savings rate of people in the bottom 10% in terms of income was 10%. They were saving 10% of their income back in the early 80s. Now their savings rate is a negative 10%. Oh, so what happened? What changed? And there, um, one theory is one that is probably more skewed towards Americans in that more conspicuous consumption. Hmm. So people are more inclined to buy things and they correlated this with income inequality. When you see people who have are living a certain lifestyle, you are more inclined to try to have that lifestyle even if you cannot afford it. And then the other possible, one of many possible explanations in Derek's um, article was the availability of cheap debt. Americans have just become more comfortable with debt, particularly mortgage debt. And as we have taken on more and more debt since the 80s, we've been able to save less and less money. So, what's the good news? The good news is... Is there um, good news? Well, there is good news. I mean, the good news is, number one, even saving, getting to the appreciation of compound growth, even saving a little bit of money on a regular basis can pay off significantly over 10, 20, 30 years. So, having that appreciation is important. One of the studies cited in this study showed a correlation between basically numeracy, math skills, and retirement savings. The more you appreciate how money compounds, the more you'll be hopefully incentivized to save, and it will pay off over the long term. And then the other thing is just to appreciate the fact that you may want to spend or have $100 today, but the fact is you're giving up a larger amount at some point in the future, and hopefully just being aware of that will encourage you to save more and spend less. That's it for the school day. No homework? No homework. Is it the weekend? It is the weekend. No homework. <laughs> All right, go ahead, close Closing her. closing notes. This is if we had like a PA system, this would be this would be like Today's lunch is chicken nuggets and green beans. <laughs> Allison would like to send a huge thank you to postcard senders. <laughs> All right, I'll stop doing that. We received one from Oahu. Uh, it didn't have a name on it unless it was sent by the person who took the photograph, in which case, thanks, Clark. Uh, Shoots sent one from my hometown of Boise. Woot woot. Jay got breakfast at Friendly Toast in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which probably included a 46 gallon mimosa, knowing New Hampshire like we do. Wink, wink. Uh, Clint and Megan sent one from Germany. Tim, who runs uh, the trails around the U.S. National Whitewater Center. AJ from Talkeetna, Alaska. And Brian from Guam. So, summer is over. I'm going to stop asking you to send postcards from your travels, but I will still squeal at Amy from the front desk every time she hands them to me, should they continue to come in. So, just know it will still give me great joy. That's the show. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Professor Brocamp, I'm teacher's assistant, Allison Southwick. <laughs> the show is edited 
Pedagogically. Pedagogically by Rick Engdahl. I did that in the wrong order. <laughs> I did. All right, whatever. Stay foolish, everybody.